Well, good morning. I want you to know it's great to be back. I have missed you guys. I've been traveling this summer, and one of the highlights of our, our travels was I had the opportunity to speak at a missions conference in Frankfurt, Germany. And it's interesting to think about Europe. The number of believers as a percent of population in Europe makes Europe the least reached continent in the world. I bet a number of you didn't realize that. And so what that means is ministry and church planting and seeing people come to Christ is slow and tedious and difficult in Europe. It means that deeply committed believers in Sweden or in Poland or in cities like Rome uh, often wonder, am I making any difference at all for the kingdom of God? Maybe that's where you are today, relative to your family or, or your friends or at, uh, in the marketplace, uh, your school. You find yourself wondering, am I really making a difference for the kingdom of God, for Jesus Christ? So I want to tell you two stories that emerge from this conference uh, in order to encourage you. The Greek island of Lesbos is two to three miles from Turkey. Refugees who are fleeing the Middle East and North Africa arrive regularly on the island of Lesbos. They arrive in rubber rafts or rubber boats, and then they're ushered into refugee camps. It's the way the Greek government has set it up. And often these refugees are fleeing horrible situations, bombings. They've lost family members. Many of them are arriving on this island with nothing but the clothes that they are wearing. It's a tense, it's a difficult, it's a very discouraging uh, situation. Rhonda's actually served in the refugee camp on the island, as, as well as a number of people here at Wheaton Bible Church. A hundred percent, or I should say 99 percent, of these refugees are Muslims. A couple of years ago, Wheaton Bible Church sent two fantastic young couples to Lesbos. They were willing to leave the comforts of Chicago and serve and minister full-time to the refugees, both inside and outside the refugee camp. Some of you know them, the Garnets and the Simmermans. While Rhonda and I were in Frankfurt, Germany, ministering at this missions conference about reaching Europe with the gospel, we had multiple touches with the Simmermans, with Josh and Melanie. And they told us over dinner one night, and we had seen this in their prayer letter, that in the last 12 months, they have personally seen 100 Muslim refugees come to Christ. Yeah, amen. And it's even better, 95 of the 100 have been baptized, and that's a big deal because that's a great personal cost, especially if they have extended family members with them as refugees who, are, who haven't come to Christ and are still Muslims, and there's a tremendous amount of friction. So God is working, I say that all uh, to say God is working in incredible ways in areas where sometimes we least expect it, right? Right? 
It's just what the Holy Spirit does. But since we're talking about community, let me go on. Because the Zimmermans have told us, the Zimmermans have told us, they uh, have told others, and it's sort of commonsensical when you think about it, their greatest danger, their biggest problem is burnout. And therefore, their greatest need is for community. For other believers in Jesus Christ to join them. To come alongside them in, in lustfuls and to, 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 to bear the burdens and to share life and, and ministry with them. People they can laugh with, people they, they can cry with. You see, when you are on the front lines, community is a necessity. That's true in war, it's true in spiritual warfare. You need other believers that are going to pray with you or are going to encourage you, uh, that are going to speak truth into your life, uh, that are going to bear your burdens. And men and women, I want you to know, and you students, I, I want you to know, according to the Word of God, to be a believer in Jesus Christ is to be on the front line. It's not just the missionaries or the pastors. But to know Christ means you're on the front line, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, at work and uh, your apartment complex, and, and, and on and on. And that is a reality sometimes we as followers of Christ and the comforts of our culture forget. Story number two, Sammy. Sammy is not his real name. Sammy was a leading Muslim cleric in Europe. Now, that's understatement. Sammy was an advisor to the highest levels of the government in which, in the country he was in, in Europe. And as Sammy told me in Frankfurt, he was, as a Muslim, uh, totally radicalized. Yet in 2015, the Holy Spirit intervened in some supernatural ways, including a major head-on automobile accident, and Sammy came to Jesus Christ. And it has cost him. His Muslim wife divorced him. She has barred him from seeing their children. And now today, even though we're some years later, Sammy lives under multiple death threats. But Sammy has experienced Jesus, and Sammy has experienced gospel-centered, thick, not thin, community. And so Sammy is relentless and fearless in his passion to reach other Muslims, especially clerics. And we had multiple meals with Sammy. Sammy was delightful. Actually, he got married a week after the week after we got back. And Bill Oberlin, Pastor Bill here, has been involved in that. Um, Sammy told us that over the last five years, he has personally seen 750 European Muslims come to Christ. Imams, religious leaders. And I could tell you more, but I can't because this is recorded publicly. But all this to encourage you to say, God, the Holy Spirit is bigger than 
what we tend to think. And God, the Holy Spirit is in the business of changing people's lives in wonderful ways. Even in the wasteland, what has become historically the spiritual wasteland of Europe. But Sammy will be the first to tell you he can't do it on his own. It's his Christian co-workers, his uh, bosses, his mentors, his uh, spiritual uh, uh, leaders in his life, and his Christian friends that hold up Sammy's arms and protect him from falling off a spiritual cliff. And they hold up his arms just like Aaron and Hur held up Moses' arms in Exodus chapter 17. And as a result, God is using Sammy in extraordinary ways. You see, to be on the front lines and to thrive on the front lines means we have to understand that community is a necessity. And all of us are on the front lines, and therefore for all of us, community, I mean gospel-centered Christian community, is a necessity. And this morning, I want to show you the beauty and the power of community by looking at two passages in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews comes at the end of the New Testament. We're going to look at one passage in chapter 3 and one passage in chapter 10 that explain to us, in the midst of our busy lives, why community, a Christian community, isn't optional, optional, it's essential. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. And as you're turning, I, I, I want to just make a couple comments about the book of Hebrews in general. Hebrews is called Hebrews because it was written to Jewish Christians, to Jews who had converted to Jesus Christ. But some of the Jews that were attending these early first century churches had not yet converted, 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 converted. And um, so you have some that have converted, others that are in these churches that haven't converted, and apparently they were in danger of rejecting the free offer of salvation through grace in Christ and reverting to some sort of Jewish moralism, a salvation by works. Something, by the way, the Old Testament did not teach. The Old Testament does not teach salvation by works. And Hebrews was written to ad address this problem, to speak to these people, to speak to the churches and to these people in particular. So we're going to be begin reading in verse 12. Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, where we read, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So what I want to do now is I want to have a Bible study of sorts with you, and I want to walk through this, and then we'll go to our second passage. Now notice how it begins. See to it that none of you turn away. Those two words are the translation of one Greek word, and it's the Greek word apostatize. These church visitors, uh, some of the people who have been in these churches for a while, were in danger of apostatizing, which means rejecting the biblical Christ, 
rejecting salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And they wanted to go back to the comforts of Judaism. And according to the book of Hebrews, that apostasy is a very serious matter. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Paul Tripp. He has spoken here at um, Wheaton Bible Church. He's written a number of books. In my mind, he's a, 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 a spiritual giant. One of the books that he's written is a book titled Dangerous Calling. It's a book about the danger in full-time Christian ministry, the spiritual warfare, the difficulties in churches, uh, the difficulties between other believers. And so it's entitled Dangerous Calling, and it's about the need for those of us in full-time ministry to cling and lean into and press into uh, Jesus Christ and do that every day of our lives. On the back of the book, there are five endorsements from Christian leaders. Over the last couple of years, three of the five have fallen. Immorality, dysfunction, and apostasy. And if it can happen to Christian leaders, it can happen uh, to any of us. Shortly after I became a Christian when I was in college, I got involved in a wonderful Christian group, and there was a lot of things happening on our, our, our college campus spiritually. About a year into it, I got dismayed because there was a handful of people that had been in our group for about a year, and they were all in, and suddenly they were all out. They had turned away. They had wanted nothing to do with our campus group, nothing to do with Jesus Christ anymore. And I went on this journey trying to figure this out, and so I talked to some people that were discipling me. I read, I read actually the book of Hebrews because this is one of the main subjects. And I realized that the problem was that this handful of uh, men and women hadn't ever come to Christ genuinely in the first place. It was all show and no place. Now that's what's going on here in Hebrews. And I want to say to you, if you are a genuine believer in Christ, you may trip, tump, stumble, and fall, and, and sometimes badly. You may even turn away for a, a period of time. But the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is resident in you because you're a genuine believer, then you will persevere over time and you will, will turn back. But that's for another day. What I want you to see in these two verses is why or, 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 or the reason this happens, this turning away. And it's found at the end of verse 13. Look at the end of verse 13, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now that's interesting because sin is such a problem for all of us, even as believers in Christ. But Paul doesn't say, or the author of Hebrews, we're not at all sure Paul was. Uh, the author of Hebrews doesn't say your problem is sin. He says your problem is sin's deceitfulness. Because sin in its deceitfulness will blind you and you won't even know you're blind. Now think about this. None of us wake up in the morning. Now if you do, I want you to come and talk to me afterwards. But none of us wake up in the morning and say, man, I hope I'm going to be deceived today. I hope Satan's going to lie to me. 
I hope my, my spouse, my boss, is going to deceive me. As a matter of fact, I, I hope today, because I want to be deceived, that I'm going to deceive myself at a, a couple of points and lose touch in those moments with reality. I mean, who wants to live according to reality? Now, we don't say this, but this is exactly what verse 13 tells us sin does. It deceives us, and because it's deception, we don't even know it's happening. And we see this throughout the Bible. It's Satan saying to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, oh, go ahead and eat the fruit, because it will make you just like God. It's deception. It's Israel in the wilderness and all the difficulties of moving from Egypt to the promised land and living in a desert. It's Israel coming to a point of such discouragement that Israel says to herself out loud, and I'm quoting Deuteronomy chapter 1, God hates us. What? That's how dark discouragement can make your heart. God doesn't care. God hates us. It's deception. It's David looking at Bathsheba and saying, you know, I think an affair sounds like a good idea. I mean, after all, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I, I, I deserve it. It's deception. It's Peter denying Jesus Christ three times. Uh, apparently uh, thinking that if I stand with Jesus, these guys are going to kill me. It's deception. Deception always betrays Jesus with a kiss. In little moments of turning away, medium-sized moments of turning away, and, and, and big moments of, of turning away. Paul Tripp writes about this in another book, his daily devotional. And listen to what he says speaking personally. He writes, I am a blind man. As much as I would like to think that I see and know myself well, it, isn't just, it just isn't true because sin blinds me to me. As long as there still is sin inside me, there will be pockets of blindness in my view of me. It's actually more serious than what I just described because whereas every physically blind person knows that he or she is blind, uh, spiritually blind people are blind to their blindness. They actually think they see when they mm, don't. It's what you and I do when we tell ourselves, it's just the way I am, it's okay. Or we tell ourselves it's self-deceit. Oh, nobody's going to notice. Or, you know, you know, God hasn't answered a prayer in a long time. Why should I uh, take this spiritual thing, this Christian thing, uh, seriously? According to Hebrews chapter 3, just these two verses, your problem and my problem, and the reason we turn away from God in little moments and in big moments isn't just sin, it's the deceitfulness of sin. And if Hebrews chapter 3 means anything, it means that our, our, our tendency to turn to sin is so deep that we need the body of Christ. 
And that's exactly what verse 13 tells us. So in verse 12, we have the problem. At the end of verse 13, as I just stated, we have the cause, the root, the reason for the problem, the deceitfulness of sin. Turning away because our hearts are deceived by sin. So what's the solution? Well, I just mentioned the solution. Well, where is it found? It's sandwiched in the middle. It's found in the first part of verse 13. And it is not what we would expect. Paul says, or why do I keep saying that? The author of Hebrews says, but encourage one another daily. What? Encourage one another daily? The solution to overcoming personal sin and self-deceit is our relationships within the body of Christ. Close, meaningful, gospel-centered, transparent relationships uh, with one another. Uh, Encourage one another daily. Now, I I don't know if I can say this strongly enough because the shocking truth of Hebrews chapter uh, 3 is an, an accurate assessment of yourself only comes when you're actively engaged in community. Open, honest, encouraging community. Now this is hard for all of us. We're all so very busy, I get it. I'm busy. We live in a busy, frenzied, harried culture. And it's especially hard for those introverts among us. Those of you that are fives on the Enneagram, So let me just say something. Of course, self-awareness is ultimately something the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. But what's interesting here, we're going to see it in chapter 10, is that the Holy Spirit uses people as his instruments to sharpen us, to define us, to refine us, uh, uh, to grow us. And so I'll say it again, our tendency to self-deceit, personal blindness, is so deep that we need the intervention of others. This is God's word. We need people to challenge us, people to protect us, people to uh, comfort us. And what's more, according to verse 13, we need this daily. I need you to protect me from me, and you need me to protect you from you, and you need her, and you need him to do that. Now, let me take this a step further. The New Testament teaches us that to be a believer in Jesus Christ is to have a dual identity, and I hope you're aware of this. Because the New Testament teaches us we don't just have one identity, we have two identities in this life. And the first is that we are sinners, and the second is, yet we are children of grace, uh, of God's grace, because of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives the moment we believe. Now, to ignore either one of those uh, two aspects of our identity is to imperil ourselves spiritually. So, for example, if you minimize the sin in your life, and you don't take it personally, then what happens is you end up living a superficial spiritual life. 
And you become just like the world around you, just like your office, just like your friends or family or, or, or whatever. But if you ignore, on the other hand, the fact that you are a child of grace and you don't live in light of God's word and steep yourself in God's word and, and the wonder of being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, what in the world does that mean, you ask? And if you ignore that, then what happens over time is you become an angry, bitter, discouraged person. And there's no power in your life because there's no prayer in your life because you've forgotten this side of your identity. Now, Hebrews chapter 3 is telling us the way we overcome the sin resident in us, this first aspect of our identity, is in functional, healthy, biblical community. And here it's a command. Uh, a year, year and a half ago, was a friend saying to me, Rob, you are way too critical lately. You've been so defensive in these meetings, you need to stop it. And he was right. It's a wife saying to her husband, you know, you've got this anger thing going on. I know work is bad right now, but you've been way too angry and your anger is harming our kids and you need to stop it. It's Mordecai in the Old Testament coming to Queen Esther and saying, Esther, for God's sake, stop hiding your identity as a Jew. Your husband, the king, has issued a decree to slaughter all the Jews in our land. And you need to stop hiding. And in effect, you need to trust God. And Esther did, and she went and spoke to her husband, and the king relented, did away with the plan for mass massacre, and the Jews were saved. But it would never have happened apart from Mordecai. And Mordecai is an Old Testament picture of the body of Christ in action. Speaking the truth in love. And sometimes it hurts. But usually it encourages and comforts and strengthens us. So I wonder this morning, who are your spiritual Mordecais? Who are the people that you allow into your life to intrude into your life that ask you the hard questions? Who are the people you go to when you have questions? Uh, questions about God's word, questions about where in the world is God in this particular moment? People that can say to you, Rob, you're way too critical, stop it. The door of great deceit swings on the hinges of small disobedience. So God's word says, encourage one another daily because your heart is deceitful. Now let's go on. Turn to chapter 10. Here the focus shifts to the second part of our identity. Uh, so in chapter 3, it's our identity as sinners. Here we move to our identity as children of grace. And the verses we're about to read are full of Old Testament temple metaphors. And the point the author is making is that as great as the Old Testament temple was for Israel, Jesus Christ is infinitely greater. As great as what the Old Testament temple provided for Israel, what 
Jesus provides for those who believe in Jesus is infinitely superior. So let's pick it up in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, metaphor or figure, uh, temple reference, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, another one that is his body. And since we have a great priest, another one over the house of God, and here's the deal. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. More figures. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, always faithful. So we've got these metaphors, and I, I say that because I don't want you to get lost in, in the weeds here, because what I want you to understand, this is one of the strongest calls in the entirety of the New Testament, to live with the courage and the confidence that comes when you acknowledge your identity as a child of grace. I'm a child of the King of Kings. I'm a son. I, I, I'm a daughter. This is what Jesus has done so, for me. So we read in verse 19, be confident. In verse 22, draw near with full assurance, not partial assurance, full assurance. In verse 23, hold unswervingly to the hope, the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. All because of who Jesus is, all because of what he has done, and all because that we, the moment we believe, we become united with Jesus Christ. And we have a new identity. Well, explain that for a minute. And when we talk about our identity in Christ, what that means is Christ's past, past is your past. Christ's present is now your present. Christ's future is now your future. Because you are united in his death and in his resurrection. You have been raised up with Jesus Christ. The power and penalty of sin has been broken. The presence of sin is still there in our hearts. We have become new creatures in Christ. And we are united in Christ's death. So when Christ died, we died. And when Christ was raised from the dead, we have been raised to the newness of life. And as I said a moment ago, what that means is the power and the electricity and the current that flows through our lives is now supernatural, all because of Jesus, and it becomes ours the moment we believe. But here's a question I want to wrestle with. How is this normative reality, how does it become our existential reality? How does it become real in our experience? How do we grow in this grace, grow in our, our identity? Uh, how, how do we move forward? And the answer is found in the next two verses. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, and here in Hebrews, the day of judgment approaching. Again, this is not the answer we would expect. We would expect uh, 
the answer to the question, how do I grow in understanding who I am in Jesus Christ, to be read the Bible more, and that's the answer other places in the Bible, or we would expect the answer to be pray more, and that's certainly a, a biblical answer, or we would expect the answer to be, hey, just withdraw from the world and go live in a cave as the monks did. But that's not the answer here. Uh, the answer is the way you and I learn our identity and we, we grow in this grace is by getting close to people. By allowing people to intrude in our lives spiritually. By moving beyond terminally casual spiritual relationships. How are you doing? Fine. In Hebrews chapter 3, community is how we overcome uh, uh, the, the presence of sin in our lives. And here in chapter 10, it's how we grow in the grace of who we are in Jesus Christ. Now you tell me, brothers and sisters, in light of these two passages, what's more essential than Christian community? Uh, what's more important for our spiritual health? You see, you were created by God and recreated in Christ not to live on your own. Because left to yourself, and I see this in my life, we will minimize sin. And left to ourselves, and here I'm shifting to the other half of our identity we will minimize the grace we have received in Jesus Christ. And the electricity and the current of the Spirit won't flow. We all, to be a believer is to struggle with identity amnesia on both sides. And both passages are telling us, this is God's Word, telling us that the solution is community. It's how we remember After Rhonda and I lost our two spouses, we, after some time went by, we began to quietly date. We tried to keep it a secret here at Wheaton Bible Church, and it didn't work. <laughs> you people are too noisy, nosy. <laughs> noisy as well. And there were reasons for that, and one of the reasons was, man, we were still bleeding. You know, there's some pain that time never completely heals, and that includes the death of a parent, death of a spouse, other deaths that are so central to our lives. And so we were still bleeding, and we were cautious, and we were tentative, and we didn't even know our own minds completely. And as Rhonda said, for the last 18 months at that point, she had been living under this dark cloud. Now that's why Rhonda broke up with me, I kid you not, during this period five times. Me. <laughs> Where are you? Uh... 
and she used to say, you know, I know what it's like to be married to a surgeon. I have no idea if I want to be married to a pastor. Even though she'd been at Wheaton Bible Church about eight years before I, I ever came. But I want to tell you, breakup after breakup, I was completely unfazed, right? And we would have this conversation on the phone, and I'd say, I'll be over in 10 minutes. And uh, there, I was unfazed because there were lots of things that attracted me to Rhonda, but one of the things that really attracted me to Rhonda, and I want you to hear, is that in spite of her enormous grief, she never withdrew in any way from community here at Wheaton Bible Church. She attended church regularly. She thrived in her adult class, Providence. And she allowed people into her life to hold her up, uh, to help her and to comfort her. And as a result, instead of being swallowed up by grief, and grief will swallow you up if you let it, she stayed focused on God's sovereign love. She stayed focused on her identity in Christ and pushed back against the lies that are so prevalent when you go through a period like this. I mean, lies like, oh, God isn't there. Or if God um, was really loving, he, he, you know, he wouldn't allow this. Or, and one of the most pernicious of the lies is, you know, if you had just believed more, this never would have happened. And you have to go through something like that to understand how potent these lies are. And so what I saw is that in Rhonda's greatest crisis, it was community and her commitment to community and the power of community in her life that enabled her to turn from sinful unbelief and to cling to Christ. And friends, the point of these two passages is that human life is fundamentally relational. That God created us, designed us to be social beings. That our walk with Jesus is always, always to be a community project. That discipleship happens in relationships. So I want to invite you to attend church and attend church regularly. But I want to also invite you not just to attend and not just to be a spectator, but to plug in, to get involved. And if you're new and you haven't had a chance to get involved, then I want to invite you to plug into one of our small groups. We call them life groups. And they start with what we call rooted, and then they become sermon-based groups. Or to plug into one of our adult classes or plug into one of our men's or women's Bible studies. Or as Katie said earlier, if you want support, one of our support groups. And if you want to know more, you can go online, uh, check out our website, or there's people right after the service uh, that would love to answer your questions in the atrium. And I want to call you to find your fit. Because community, according to the Word of God, is not optional, it's essential. It's how we grow. Now this brings me back to the cross. We live in the West in a world of rampant individualism where what we value, and these are the plausibility structures under this and a part of this, where what we value is autonomy, privacy, and space. So we build fences 
all types of fences in our lives. And I want to say to you, as followers of Christ, we have to push back. We have to overcome that. But the way we overcome it isn't by a concept of community. The way we overcome it isn't by an example of community. The way we overcome it is by death. The death of Jesus Christ. So that in believing in him, we might die to our fear and our self-centeredness. Because on the cross, Jesus experienced the isolation, the alienation we deserve because of our sin, so that the moment we believe, we might experience the forgiveness, the acceptance, the love, the community uh, with Jesus and with one another in the body of Christ that we don't deserve. So I am not going to end my message today by telling you to suck it up, step up, or in any way to ask you introverts, to feel guilty and all become extroverts. It's not going to happen. Instead, I'm asking each and every one of you to take your eyes off yourself and to look away and see a bleeding, dying Savior who loved you so much that as he went to the cross, he went because his greatest desire is that he might have fellowship with you communion with you, a relationship with you. And it's in seeing Jesus and what he has done for you that liberates you and frees you to love and to be loved, to know and to be known, and to remember this dual identity. Let's love each other. The Bible tells us it's key to experiencing the best of life. So, Father, we ask that you would work in our lives. We're all, we have difficult schedules. Uh, we're busy. There's change in our lives constantly. Would you work and guide us so we can apply in the way you want us to apply this truth to our lives. And we thank you that you have given us a community and one another so that we can be better. What an expression of your love. Amen.